wants you to forget about all your religious training and all the, the people who are going to judge you for what you say and the people who are going to make fun of you and you're not going to fit in and all those adult things that we think about. Go back to that inner child and ask him. Ask him what it's like to trust and love and to just be. Is God good? I mean, is God really in control over our lives? These are just some of the questions we often ask during deconstruction. This week, we're talking with Carl Forehand, author of Apparent Faith, about his own deconstruction and his personal experiences, as well as how Carl's deconstruction journey strengthened his family life. We are for the spiritual nomads, the outcasts, and the ones who desire to ask the hard questions. A shelter in the desert. A safe place to share our thoughts, our hopes, and our dreams. We are pursuing the truth, and we don't care about the answers. We invite you to come and sit at our table and be a part of our tribe. We are brave. We are bold. We are the Reckless Pursuit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reckless Pursuit. My name is Cody. And my name is Elaine. And this is episode 83. And today we are talking with Carl Forehand, author of Apparent Faith. We had a great conversation with Carl about all things his deconstruction journey, how it's impacted his family life, uh, just the growth and how he came to realize his kids already shared some of the same views as him, but were too just, uh, I guess, nervous to share their original views that they had with him because of his time in ministry. He goes on to talk about just some of his life experiences and how through deconstruction, it's actually gave him a new perspective of who God is to him. So this was a great conversation and we thoroughly enjoyed it. And just as a pre-runner, you can grab Carl's book in the show notes below. I actually really liked this conversation with Carl because when it comes to deconstruction, we always talk about the internal experiences and the internal questions, but we rarely ever talk about how that affects our relationships and those around us, specifically with family. And so I think just really this conversation highlights that. Yeah. So before we get into this conversation real quick, we ask that if you get something out of this, share this episode on with a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to spread anything and we want as many people in on this conversation as possible and if you have not done so so far there is a group just for you called nomads a safe community for christians to ask unsafe questions we strive to provide an atmosphere where people can come together and talk about deconstruction doubts what god's doing in their lives and just kind of coming together to to be a solid community the, something that we all need. So if you would like to be a part, we invite you to join in on the conversation. Head down to the show notes below, click that link, and ask to join. We would love to have you. So let's get right to this conversation with Carl Forehand, author of Apparent Faith. All right, everyone, welcome to The Reckless Pursuit. We are here with Carl Forehand, author of Apparent Faith. Carl, how are you? Doing good. How are you? Doing very Very well. Um, So, Carl, I just want to just jump right into this. Share with everyone here just maybe a little bit of where you've come from in your background and uh, kind of just up to speed on maybe what got you into writing and what kind of uh, spurred on your writing. Yeah. I was raised in a um, fundamentalist evangelical home, 
really my mom more than my dad pushed us to go to church and kept us there and went to a private Christian school for several years. That's where I learned to steal and cuss. And uh, <laughs> then uh, I um, went to move to a small town, just wanted to get out of there as fast as I could, went through the typical rebellion and so on. But when I decided to kind of come back to church, back to my religion, I, I found the thing that was easiest for me. I found a lot of rejection in my life. And, and, and so it became a big deal to fit in. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to fit in wherever I was. So I, that I, I got in, back into a religion, a, a system that I was comfortable with. And that, that made it easy to fit in and, and belong somewhere. It also led to some maybe what I would consider now not good theology. And, and grounding in that in my life, spent some time as a computer programmer and did did those things for about nine years. And then for whatever reason, decided I was called to the ministry and jumped in both feet. That was at the time of Y2K, where I, I could make a lot of money as a computer programmer, but really felt the call to be a pastor. And to, uh, just, you know, there's something about the love of Christ and things like that that I I wanted to share with people. I'm kind of that Enneagram type that that has to tell people about what he knows about and so on. So I, it, that appealed to me. But a, a church planter gave me some advice. I don't think, I don't know if it's good or bad, but he said, what you want to do as a, as a church planter, as revitalizing these small town churches, is just go in and fit in. And so there, that 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 goes perfect with my bent. And, and I, I did everything I could to fit into those small towns and kind of even became famous for, you know, um, among the church planning community of, you know, Carl can go into any situation and fit in, you know, fits in. And so for about, you know, 17 years or so did that as a bivocational pastor. My career also kind of slowly took off where I was making quite a bit of money. So I had two different worlds and two different things that I was trying to fit into. But Eventually, I got to a point where um, there were beliefs that I was trying to defend that I was having a harder time defending. Hmm. Um, we had changed our health practices to to be more plant-based, and we were finding ridicule even for that. And, and, and that was a surface issue. That was a small thing. It didn't matter too much. Um, but we also, you know, began to investigate practices like like yoga and meditation and some things like that. And I always say we, a lot of times it was me and kind of yeah. dragging her along for the ride. But <laughs> you know, you know, it just got to a point where I remember Laura and I were walking down the street and I I just said to her, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep dancing around these issues. I've got to, I got to figure some of this stuff out. I've got to investigate some of it deeper. And eventually we retired from the church we were replanting and restarting and took some time off eventually you know through some of the things i described in the book led to you know brian zahn and and william paul young and and some of those those people and books by brad jerzak and people like that we just began to i guess kind of deconstruct our faith and started to rebuild uh, from there, we're still in that process, but the book then is a it's a journal of I, I wanted people to know 
um, what it feels like. You know, I didn't want to argue theology and um, and so on, but I wanted them to to go with me on my journey from my kind of unique perspective as uh, as a pastor, but then tied that in as a father. Um, Paul Young's book, The Lies We Believe About God, and the movie The Shack kind of got me thinking about that. I don't know if you remember the Sophia scene in the wisdom scene, and whether in the cave and the shack. And he says, you know, which one of your children could you, will you condemn? And he said, I can't. And and that was literally the lens I took to write my book is is to to look at it, being a parent and how I raised my children and the things I thought about, the things I wrestled with. And and in a lot of cases, it brought me to a you know kind of a conclusion that if if I'm going to stick with this belief system I have, then God must be worse than me. He's got a worse temper than me. He's able to condemn his children when I can't condemn mine. So that just began a period of wrestling. And, and really, the book was just therapy for me to get that out yeah. and, and let it all kind of flow out. Took a couple months off from work and and, and did it. I'm, I'm really, really proud of it. And I'm, it it's, it's what I want to say. It's what I hope people can hear. And I hope they hear my heart in it. So... That's kind of where I'm at now. Very cool. You said something just a second ago that really stood out to me. And you were saying you didn't want to argue theology. You just wanted to relate how that feels and how like deconstruction or questioning anything, how that feels. And I just want to kind of like just touch on that for a second, because I feel like one of the biggest struggles whenever you start questioning things is, well, for so long you had a, a theology built up that you could defend, right? We're trained uh, in church to defend our theology. We're trained on, oh, well, this is the point you say toward this question. Like, even inadvertently, sometimes we're just, we're given these um, buzzwords or like specific statements that help us defend our faith. And then when you start deconstruction, you lose all of that. Yeah. And a lot of times people ask you, well, what do you believe about this? Or, well, what's your new belief on this? And more often than not, I know in maybe in my situation, in like just a few of the witness like accounts I have is, it's not really, you don't really have the answer a lot of time. That's kind of the mm -hmm. whole point. And so when people ask you, well, what do you believe? It almost makes you kind of retract into your shell a bit mm -hmm. because you don't have an answer. You just know that what you used to feel isn't right and it doesn't sit right with your spirit. So what are some of those things that maybe some of those initial reactions that you had or maybe some of those initial beliefs that kind of spurred on a bit of your deconstructing of your uh, your previous beliefs? What were some of those beliefs? And then maybe what do you have to say uh, to kind of offer encouragement to people who don't want to argue theology, just like you, who want to focus more on just pulling through this emotionally? Yeah. And so probably one of the things that I, I couldn't wait to get out, It's pro I think it's even in the introduction or the first chapter that um, my view of hell kind of changed. And you're right, we have to have in evangelicalism, we have to have a certainty. And so then when you you move to a place of vulnerability, we, we have to say, I don't know. And I'm okay with that right now. Um, I just really look back at when did my beliefs form and if they started when I was seven years old, when I walked down the aisle or whatever, you know, um, did I, you know, <laughs> Was I able to form my own beliefs then, or was it from someone else that was passed on to me? And then I formed this certainty in, in 
in seminary and so on, and I was committed to that and committed to defending it. But then I think, yeah, the first piece that kind of started to come off was my view of hell. You know, it can can I and with the shack and all those things that that went into that, that was the first thing to kind of kind of reconsider is 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 you know, could oh God, you know, how could God be loving and merciful and compassionate and, and pictured as a father, pictured as a mother also, but pictured as a father. Uh, I couldn't, I, I just no longer could believe that. And that was kind of the first thread in the sweater that kind of pulled away. But then other things started to fall pretty fast. And that one of them was, is God in control? You know, and, and Thomas J. Ord has a book out called God Can't right now. It's a fascinating book. Some of those books still, even Paul Young's book, The Lies We Believe About God, still, I still wrestle with them. You know, and, and say how much of that. I, and again, it's it's certainty and uncertainty and vulnerability. But um, is God in control? You know, does does He control us? And 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 for me, I looked at it through the lens of my of my parenthood. My daughters, my teenage daughters, occasionally would say to me, um, "What are you doing, Dad?" I'd say, "I'm trying to help," and they'd say, "You're not helping." <laughs> no, you're not helping because you're trying to control this situation and we're trying to work through it. We need to work through it and we got it. You know, we may make some mistakes, but you said you'd still love us, right? No matter what we do. So we're going to try to, we're going to work through this. Well, um, another one was, is, you know, God is good, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a church where you say God is good all, all the time. time. And all, all the time. God, God is, is good. good. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So, uh, when I when I took that in that chapter, when I took it back through, you know, raising my child, my children, um, yeah, I was good initially because I eased the comfort of a dirty diaper and put food in their stomach. Actually, Laura did all that. I but I watched. You know, I observed it. Um, you know, and then I kept the nightlight on for them. We we comforted them at night, so we were good because of that. Um, when Moved further down the road, then, you know, I, I helped them with some things they were going through and comforted them. When they're teenagers, basically, if I gave them the keys of the car or helped them find their sneakers, you know, or gave them a little money, then I was good, right? And you've seen people on Facebook say, well, my my dad is awesome, right? And it's because he just gave them the keys of the car or bought them a new car or, you know, helped them find their shoes. Otherwise, they're in their room. And so dad is good. God is good. And so if, if we're still kind of chanting that in our churches, then, then what we're saying is God just gave me the keys to the car. So I like him right now. But, but God is really good in relationship. And he's good because of that. But we were created from relationship and for relationship. We're created from that, that relationship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And we're created for relationship with him and with others. And that's the part that's good. It, not that he does what I want. And I, that's, that's where my frustration comes these days is in our language around prayer. Um, you know, did I get what I want? Well, if I got what I want, God is good. Was God still good if I didn't get what I want? You know, so all of those, those things I just wrestle with through the lens, through two lenses, really that God is, a, is like Jesus, 
He's exactly like Jesus. He's always, you know, like Brian Zahn says, he's always been like Jesus. But also then, you know, through the lens of me being a parent, and, and it's the play on words and the title of parent faith, right? So some people say, kind of in criticism of the book, they say, well, are you saying you're a good parent? No, I'm not saying, I'm saying I'm a mediocre parent at best. And I got to write the book, so the story I tell about myself is probably in the best light, but I'm not saying I'm a great parent. I'm saying I'm a mediocre parent, but God has to be better than me if we're going to use that parent lens for him, right, or her, right? He's got to be better than me. He's got to have, can't have a worse temper than me. He can't be more retributive than I am. He's got to be restorative, you know, and so those are the things, you know. I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of went down. No, I, <laughs> no, I believe you did. Yeah. So something I, I actually love talking about this and reflecting on just who God is throughout my life and, and just really in the past 10 years of my life of where my faith has kind of transitioned and, and believing who God was whenever I was a teenager and, and throughout college and then now. And something that I'm realizing is who God who who God is to me 10 years ago or five years ago or a year ago is not who he is to me now. And so I guess my question for you is with all of these things that you've kind of rethought and, and deconstructed and questioned, who is God to you now than who he was maybe 10 years ago? Uh, one of the chapters that um, Laura and I can't still can't read without crying is when we talked about our, our grandson, Jackson was, he was born eight weeks premature, and when it was a it was an interesting situation when he was born. He's just tiny, he's just little bitty, you know. And we went into the NICU, and we were standing over him. And I had I had memorized Bob Dylan's the slow version of of um, Forever Young, and I was going to recite that to him, and I couldn't. I, I couldn't get it out. I was so emotional, and. I looked across at my daughter and my son-in-law, and I see kind of the helpless look in their eyes, you know, of what are we supposed to do now? You know, I remember taking my son home and putting him in the middle of the floor going, what am I supposed to do? Well, this is a whole different deal for my daughter and her husband. And I remember looking, I remember fighting the urge to, to run out of the room and go, what the hell, God, you know? And I remember, you know, fighting all those emotions, but but almost the just a flop in, in my view of God from that, whatever I thought God was before, um, that moment helped me cement in this, this idea that God, God is the God that sets with me in that stuff. And God is the God that is with me in those things. And God's the God that cries with me in the NICU. Just still today, I can't read that chapter without, without getting emotional. But God is God is the God that that's with me, and that's enough. You know, and the rest of it, um, I'm still trying to understand. You know, but but I start from that core of making enough space for God to be with me, not having to to orchestrate Him to to orchestrate me. However, I think He should orchestrate me, but it's just just to realize that He's with me. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. That's good. You're making me get emotional. I know. <laughs> Your entire heart, everything you've poured out, is based on understanding God through the lens of a parent. So let me ask you this. How has 
your relationship with your own children changed? Was there any, I mean, cause I can imagine we don't have kids. And so I'm, I'm baking, this is purely speculative. So feel free to correct me anywhere I'm wrong, but I can imagine there would almost be some, I don't know, guilt or fear. Like I know how I feel like thinking about raising a child and as exciting as it is to me when that time comes for us, it's also terrifying Scary, because it's yeah. like, this is a human being. Like, I mean, that's what every parent goes yeah. through. It's like, I have to try to keep them instill alive. In, yeah. Well that too, but <laughs> instill in them, like all of the, the values of like trying to be, at a, you know, the, the example of Christ showing love, trying to, you know, teach them all these things. And so as you've went through, and I could be off on your point, but uh, of when you started kind of changing some of your philosophies and stuff, but was there ever a point where like you started shifting these and you had to explain to your children, Hey, like I kind of view things a little differently now than maybe you were taught or how did some of those conversations go? Was there any tension with that? Or was it, was it a beautiful moment? Just do you mind sharing a little bit of that? Yeah. So one of the things I explain in the book that I think is in the first chapter where a lot of my deconstruction started was, this encounter at the IHOP where all my adult children, we somehow got them all together at the same time and we had breakfast. Maybe I think maybe it was at night, but we had breakfast together at IHOP because it was, you know, it's just a comforting place and comfort food. And, and the best time to have breakfast is at night. That's right. <laughs> just say it. Yeah. So, and so all three of my, I have a picture of them in, um, it's not in the book, but I have a picture of them at that IHOP. And they were sitting across from me. And my wife and I were on this side. And they they were talking politics or something. We never talked politics or religion because I was a pastor and they were pastor's kids. And But they all, they love politics and so on now. And they were, I think they were talking politics. But one thing I realized is, is all of a sudden they were teaching me something. And... And the the only the, the few things I think I did right in raising them. Number one is I focused on that verse: "Don't exasperate your children." And every once in a while, Laura would say, "You're going too far. You're doing, you, you know." And my daughters would say, "You're not helping," you know. And so I try not to exasperate them to lose the relationship. But the other thing was that we we try to teach them to think for themselves. You know, I said, this is, you know, this is, I'm a pastor. I have this certainty and this belief system, but you, you have to have your own beliefs. Um, so we try to teach them to think for themselves. We try to teach them. I try to teach my girls, especially to be brave. And, and so then I found myself at IHOP and going, wow, uh, at least this happened that now, they're mature and they're thinking for themselves, and they're actually in, in inspiring me um, probably to be more compassionate, to think of God a little different and, and especially in their politics was how it was coming out. So, the, so it was funny. Then, you know, maybe a few months later, we're getting a little further down the road and we're, we're going, we're going to change some of our beliefs. I set my girls down, my son's in Taiwan teaching English, but uh, we set them down on the porch, and I said, "Listen, I just want you to know I'm changing some of my beliefs and believing in a less violent God and a more more restorative God, and so on." And they they just kind of looked at me like we've we've been waiting for you, Dad. Yeah. You know? hmm. <laughs> and my daughter told me if you moved to a bigger town, you'd probably be, you know. And so they they like there's no shock in their eyes. It's just kind of like yeah, we've we've been waiting for you. Thanks for coming. You know, we're glad you're along on the ride. Now we've We've been there for a while, you know, 
that was that was exciting uh, and refreshing. But but certainly, you know, you can't you can't control your children, right? That you have you have to just do what you can to nurture them and encourage them. And, and I think I dealt with that a little, in the book a little bit. That God God encourages us. God right? God's um, you remember that quote from Bob Goff? The love love does, and remember the most recent one. But um, in it, he says, he, he, "There's a quote. It's a famous quote. You, you can find it real easy." He said, "Really, the the job of a parent. I think he says, father. The job of a father is not to to plan out a rigid itinerary for his children, but the job of a father is to lean over his children and say, what do you want to do today?'" Let's go do that together. It was real hokey the way we probably did it, like team forehand or something like that. You know, <laughs> and they you now they kind of shrug you off and so on. But it, I think in the long run they appreciate it. we're in this together. I want to know the desires of your heart. I, I don't want you to be a doctor because I want you to be a doctor. I want you. My daughter just developed a desire to be a nurse early on, so we're going to do everything we can to help you and mainly be brave and keep going and don't, mm -hmm. don't stop trying and things like that. Yeah. That's good. I love just the beauty of that story and the reunion and just coming together with your kids and, and like your kids didn't view you as like judgmental. They were just like, we were expecting this and it was just a matter of time. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's how God views us whenever we have questions or doubts or come to realizing his true character and God's like, Hey, like, I knew you would come back. Like, let's do this. Let's go. Let's take on the day. I, I just love that. Yeah, and and something else you were just saying is about uh, one of my biggest. I don't know what it. I don't. It's not a revelation. I don't know. Just this biggest like wordplay. I guess is like I've always been told God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. And that always scared the mess out of me because yeah, I'm like, sure. whenever, whenever, if God has an itinerary for my life, if I miss one little thing, like, oh, crud, the whole schedule's out the window. Like, I have, like, botched it. I've screwed it. what it is either. Exactly, <laughs> right? I'm having to, it's like a scratches, you know, if you scratch off the next thing or decipher the next clue. And one of my biggest things was, like, realizing that God has a purpose for every soul, for every life. He has a purpose for me. But no matter what, it's kind of the whole scenario. You're in a room, there's a bunch of doors, right? We talk about this mm -hmm. analogy all the time in church. It's like, oh, well, you're just waiting on God to open the right door. And I was like, I'm spending my whole life waiting on a door. And then mm -hmm. I realized if I just pick one and walk through it, they all lead to the same room. Right. Everything right. leads to the same room. There isn't this weird shell game God is playing with us. And so I love what you were saying there because that's like a personal struggle I have dealt with mm -hmm. in life is feeling like, at any time, like I'm going to make the wrong decision. And then I love what you were saying about your daughters. Like she's showed interest in being a nurse since she was young. And so you're like, yeah, we're going to let her mm -hmm. pursue that. We're going to grow with her in that. And I feel like that's how God is with us. He's like, hey, you show this passion. Like I put that seed in you. Like that's 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 in you. That's created. I want to cultivate that. Oh, like you feel like you're changing seasons. You're going to go do this now. That's cool. I support that. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I love that. So Yeah, I'm with you. And we still had to go through middle school. Which I, <laughs> I term that as hell, um, especially with my daughters, because I didn't understand anything they were going through. Um, and Laura would encourage me and just, just say, just, you know, just endure. You're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And I, 
I don't know because I don't understand anything. And then they, the, about the time they became human beings again, they moved out mm-hmm. to that separation <laughs> anxiety and all that. Yeah. So whatever rosy picture I painted in the book, you know, there was still struggles. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, it's maybe it boils down to mostly a failure to communicate. My youngest daughter, Lily, set me straight, which is, you know, something I may not, ha- I probably don't have to do with God. Right. So the analogy doesn't always hold true, but, but it's about communication. It's about listening and, and those kind of things. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how does someone, and I'm just kind of going back to the uh, the story of you and the NCIU, uh, how does someone take this God who they've always seen as more distant or vengeful, and what are some like ways that you can almost understand God as loving, or how do you, how do you even make that mental shift? Because I feel like a lot of people want to view that, but just some of the structures we have in place keep us mm-hmm. from that. And so what are some mental practices or just some some new ways to think to just kind of try to meditate on to help God see or to kind of come to understand God as more of a loving parent versus like this distant uh, puppet master, I guess, for lack of better terms. Yeah. So, so our old advice was read your Bible, study, pray more, you know, do more, serve more and so on. Um, I find it mostly in doing less now that two months that I was off work, never been off work for two months in my life to just sit um discovering center centering prayer and some some meditation i i still haven't settled on my practice i've been at word of life church with brian zahn for a couple of years and and just sat in the audience for a while and um he teaches a prayer school that's a little more liturgical and that, that's helpful but but I find right in the middle of his prayer liturgy is that he calls it sitting with Jesus. And some people call it centering prayer, but just just some some guided meditation, some centering prayer. And it's really about doing, you know, when I give myself permission to not do anything, to not think about anything, uh, just be. Yeah. And so that that that's teaching me, I think, how to walk with God more effectively. That's good. Uh, and kind of in that same vein is kind of like when you're going through these mental shifts, you had said like the the old, the old way is read your Bible more, pray more. Mm-hmm. I think you just kind of answered really well about kind of what prayer looks like, but what does reading your Bible look like when you start <laughs> having these questions? Because I feel like most of the time you open it, it's just part Where of its I conviction start? is like, yeah. oh, I feel like I need to still believe this. And the other, like, how do you get rid of those lenses that you used to read through and mm-hmm. How important do you read your Bible every day? Do you read it every week? Are you sinning if Where you don't? Where do you start? Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say Laura and I are still wrestling with those things. Um, number one is going to church. Number two is reading my Bible. You know, I like Brian Zahn's analogy of the the Bible as a soil out of which our faith grows. In the in the book, I make the comment that I'm not trying to prove the Bible anymore. I'm trying to discover Jesus. So um, he's still, Jesus is still compelling to me. The way of Christ is compelling to me. And uh, I'd say, I don't know if I have an answer for you yet. That I think the, the lect, Lecto Divina, me, you know, that method of, of just slowing, slowing way, 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 way down. If we're going to read the Bible, 
and let's 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 slow way down listen to god more right maybe read less um but i'd say that that's still a work in progress for me yeah yeah I love that just your honesty of like, I, I don't exactly know what that looks like. I, I'm still searching for that for myself. And I think a lot of times in in deconstruction, we realize it's not about coming to an answer. It's about coming to Jesus and really walking with God. And it's okay to not have all the answers because that was the problem in the first place of you were trying to have all these answers and you were trying to pull answers from all these different people and you like weren't understanding who God was for yourself. And so I just, I appreciate that honesty of just saying like, I, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. I'm I'm trying different things, but I, I think that's just important for our listeners of it's okay if you don't know. It's still hard for me because Laura will ask me a question and what she's wanting to know is what do you think, right? And I, and I'll start explaining and trying to come up with a conclusion. Then I, right in the middle of it, I end up saying, you know what? I don't know. But but it's been, I think it's been freeing to say that's okay. There's paradox. There's some both and instead of either or and, and those kind of things. And there's, there's some uncertainty. And really, that's okay. This is a long journey. It's a lifelong journey. And it's, it's not, um, we don't have to figure it all out tomorrow. Yeah, it's really freeing. Uh, and, I, and I don't feel, you know, less or for that. You know what I mean? Um, I don't don't feel like I'm I'm losing the battle or I'm less or I'm um, less spiritual or more spiritual. You know, but I can still say I don't I don't know, and, I, and that's okay. For once, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's really that's really good. I think that's probably one of the biggest struggles with questioning yeah. anything is just coming to that point of being okay and realizing not having the answer doesn't make you less Christian, doesn't make you less spiritual, doesn't make you loved by God less. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's wonderful. So Carl, we like to sum things up here with, instead of asking you a final question, allowing you to ask the audience a final question, whoever's listening right now. So say there's someone sitting across from you right now and they're reading through your book and they're struggling to see God as this loving figure in their lives. And so what question would you ask them about their life and relationship with God to help them understand his love for them? One of the chapters I talk about darkness and shadow and it's about encountering our shadow and being compassionate towards the inner child. And so I, I think I would ask people to to ask their their inner self and their inner child to say, you know, when you look into that child's eyes, is that child's looking up to a parent? What does that child think? And I want you to forget about all your religious training and all the, the people who are going to judge you for what you say and the people who are going to make fun of you and you're not going to fit in and all those adult things that we think about. Go back to that inner child and ask him. Ask him what it's like to trust and love and to just be. Yeah. That's you cool. know, and 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 look into that child's eyes and tell him as an adult, I've got your back. I'm, I, I can cover you. You know, no one's going to hurt you. Um, no one's going to make fun of you. But look in that child's eyes and say, say, uh, what was it like when I could just be authentic? And, and that, that's how, you know, and that's, that's how I want to, for the rest of my life, relate to my, 
my heavenly father, my, you know, that's how I want to relate to the divine is, is I want to be like that little boy that was authentic and real, you know, so that's I don't know if I answered your question. No, absolutely. Yeah. That was very, very well put. Carl, your book is available everywhere Apparent Faith. What is the best place to find your book if someone's wanting to pick up a copy of it? Well, they say wherever books are sold. I don't. I think that means Amazon. But yes. <laughs> pretty Amazon, much. Yes. Barnes, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, Choir, the publisher is Q-U-O-I-R, I think. Um, and they they have a landing page for the book that's really nice. It, show, it gives a, a five-page preview of the book. I mean, a five-chapter preview. Um, it has a video, an introductory video for it that we recorded. Um, it's got bullet points to what the book's about. It's, it's a great, great landing page. But it's just, um, you know, choir.com. Calm. You can find it. If you look for choir, publish him with a Q. You know, and, and Carl's coaching is is me, Carl with a K. So that that website has my blog and podcasts and everything. And you know, if you find me on Facebook, it's it's probably kind of annoying how much I talk about the book right now. So you won't have any trouble finding it. But the main place, Amazon. You know, is is the main thing. Yeah. Very cool. And I have the choir link and we'll get an Amazon link mm -hmm. and I'll be sure to link to Carl's coaching yes. and whatever social media you are most. I know for you're active on Facebook, but if there are any others, we can uh, catch up after this call. And I'll be sure to include all of those in the show notes. So wherever you're listening to this, you'll have direct links to all of what Carl has going. And I encourage everyone to go check it out. Carl, thank you for your honesty, <laughs> your authenticity you. and just being willing to share um, the emotion mm -hmm. behind all of this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Once again, Carl, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and have this conversation with us. I know many parents uh, who are going through their own doubts will so benefit from your message. I know many children will so benefit just knowing that it's okay to have those doubts. And I just thank you for sharing your story and if you're looking to pick up a copy of his book, listen to Carl's podcast, get connected with him. You can find him, all what he does, links to his, uh, his book and his website and his podcast in the show notes below. And we invite you to go down there, click that link and show Carl some love. We love every single one of you guys. We thank you for the positive ratings. We thank you for the comments. Thank you for the engagement on social media. We are available, and we would love for you to hit us up. You can find us in Nomads. You can find us at TheRecklessPursuit.com. All of our social media links are there. And we look forward to connecting with all of you. And if you haven't done so so far, go over there, click that little rating box, and give us an honest review. That's how we know how to keep improving and what you guys love and what you guys uh, want going forward. And as always, be brave. Be bold. And be reckless. We'll, we'll talk, talk soon. soon.